are continuing in Acts this week. We took a week off. Uh, Brother Dave Willauer shared with us uh, lessons from the life of bees. Did everyone get a chance to look at that? That was pretty cool, uh, that teaching. If you haven't, I'd encourage you uh, to go back if you weren't here and listen to it on the podcast. There was a lot of cool stuff in there. Um, we're jumping back into Acts. And just a reminder, this is a couple weeks in Acts. Um, we have, I think, four more weeks that will be in the scriptures. And then uh, the fifth Sunday from now, we're going to be taking a week to just reflect on what did we learn? What, what stood out to us in our journey through Acts? So if you have anything um, that you'd like to share with the congregation that over the past year and several months that we've been walking through Acts that the Lord has taught you about, about God, about Paul, about the church, about discernment, anything that you would like to testify to, um, maybe what I'm thinking about doing is just having people write some really brief reflections and then we can share those together. So if you're interested in doing that um, and would like to have that shared with the congregation, hey, this is, this is something that I learned, something that really impressed, uh, God impressed upon me while we were walking through Acts, contact me and uh, I would love to collect those and we can share them with the body. And I'll be sharing that week, I'll be sharing my own uh, reflections, what I've learned, what the Lord has impressed on me as we've walked through Acts. So um, after that, we're going to go into a series on the church. And this is really cool how this is working together because in Acts, we've been uh, focusing on discernment, but we've also been watching the birth of the church. Then as a church, we invited you this summer to read the book Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, which is his reflections on uh, the way things have been going in American church over the last several decades. If you Awesome. If not, I would highly recommend you picking up a copy of that book and reading it. At the end of the summer, we're going to put together some discussion forums uh, to process that book together. And so we have this sort of perfect trifecta. We've been walking through Acts, watching the, the church birthed. Um, we're reading this book, Letters to the Church, and we're going to go into a series on the church. So this is really a chance for us to tackle some of these things together, to be fully immersed in asking difficult questions. What does it mean to be the church? Uh, how does God design the church? So again, if you're not reading Letters to the Church, I would recommend that. If you need help getting a copy, we have a couple extra copies that we'd be happy with you. Feel free to ask for one. At the end of Acts, the stories tend to be longer. And so for the next couple weeks, we're going to be covering lengthy uh, portions of Scripture. It's not like, it's not the type of Scripture where you can just take five verses and pull it aside and have a sermon. So this morning, we're going to be starting in verse 11 of 23, and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 24. That's a lot of reading of Scripture. I want you to look at your neighbor, and I want you to say, we can do this. Go ahead. All right, one, one thing that Francis Chan points out in his book, and, it, and it's really true, is how little public reading of scripture we do in, in church today. And for so much of church history, the, the church gathering was really based on the public reading of This is a good opportunity for us um, to publicly read the scriptures together. So as I'm reading lengthy period uh, portions of scripture, it's going to be like, you might be tempted to be like on the airplane next to the engine where there's that humming 
that droning noise, this isn't a moment for that. Because what happens on the airplane? You fall asleep. All right, this morning, let's engage the word of God together. Can we do that? Amen? All right, is his word worthy of our attention and lengthy spells? It is. All right, so this morning, Paul before rulers. Just uh, by way of review, Paul has just wrapped up his third missionary journey, and he has traveled with multiple companions um, where he, uh, it, from different churches in this area, and they brought an offering with them uh, back down to the Jerusalem church. And in Jerusalem, Paul was arrested. Actually, he wasn't arrested. He was being beaten in the temple, and then the Roman tribune came and rescued him. And then he stood trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Mike Morby preached about that two weeks ago. Um, and then that's where we're picking up the scripture today. I want to with Hebrews chapter 12. I've said this multiple times in Paul's journey to Jerusalem that I think that Paul saw himself walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus was walking to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to suffer, knowing that he was going to be crucified. Paul was compelled by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem even though that he was very well aware of the fact that he was going to suffer. And he says this multiple times. I know the Spirit of God testifies in every city that I go to that trials and suffering await me in Jerusalem. So Paul is seeing himself in the footsteps of Christ. Paul famously wrote, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul, seeing himself in the footsteps of Jesus, walking to Jerusalem. And I think up until this point, Paul is like 50-50 on whether or not he's going to die. Like, I, I think that there's a good part of him that up until this point that he thinks he's going to die in Jerusalem. So Hebrews 12, the famous passage coming out of Hebrews 11 where it lists all the heroes of the faith. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You guys don't have any weights or sin that clings closely, do you? Nothing, nothing that nags at your heels, nothing that is from your past that holds on, nothing that you have a difficult time kicking. We can't relate to that. Now this is, man, we read this with any kind of honesty. And yes, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set. Who do we look to? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Everybody say that phrase together, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Can we read that together? All right, here we go. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He goes on to say, hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I don't think anyone in this room has resisted to the point of shedding our blood. Though we know people who do, who do and, and still do um, in different places of the world. All right, I want to highlight this one phrase before we go into the Paul. It says that Jesus... For the joy 
that was set before him endured the cross. So there was something ahead of him that he saw and that he claimed as his own prior to the experience of the cross that allowed him to endure the suffering of the cross. Does that make sense? So for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising, his shame, despising the shame. What was, what was the joy set before Jesus that caused him to endure? That's right. That's right. The joy set before Christ was that he was capturing in his death and resurrection a people for his father. This is the joy set before. Why Jesus endured the cross is that beforehand he knew this is how I gather God's people into his family. We have been adopted through Christ. Amen? Amen. For the joy who was set before him. Now, run the race in the same way that Jesus did, which means we too have to have a joy that's set before us, and we have to own that thing in order to walk faithfully through the trials and the cross that Jesus has for us. Anyone who's a disciple of Jesus has a cross. Jesus said, anyone who would be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. What's the joy set before you and I? It allows us to endure the cross that we are to carry. That's right. Intimacy with Jesus to be with Jesus and one another fully in his presence. I think Paul is absolutely in his journey through Jerusalem, his own suffering. I think that he is owning this so deeply. He has the joy of Christ set before him, the author and perfecter of his faith, and he is able and willing to endure whatever lies ahead because this thing, the hope of Christ, sustains him. So often for us, of the joy that's set before us. And so when we come to the various trials, we don't have the endurance to walk through it with conviction, strength, enduring perseverance because we haven't fully embraced the joy set before us. We're to do the same thing that Jesus did. Now, no one knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some scholars think it was Paul. Others think it was Apollos or Luke or others. But this and I'm not claiming one of them as the author, but this sounds like Paul to me when I, when I read this passage. This, this, this is the embodiment of his life. So this is the frame. Does that make sense? This is the frame of the story that we're looking at today. Um, and then one conversion is really important to keep in mind while we're looking at the end of his life. This is right after Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. Remember, Paul is going to arrest Christians in Damascus to put them in chains. Jesus appears to him and it says in verse 10 of Acts 9, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now pay attention to this part that I've got highlighted. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry what? My name. To carry my name, that's Jesus' name, before who? Before Gentiles and kings 
and children of Israel. So far in the story of Paul, he has carried the name of Jesus before Gentiles and the children of Israel. He's yet to carry the name of Jesus before kings. We're about to see that happen. He's he's my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel, and then this part, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Who here wants that to be their mission statement from God? This is God's mission statement for Paul's life. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This is our mission. This is your mission. This is my mission. This is what God has called us to. That we would suffer faithfully, enduring whatever cross God has for us, for the joy set before us, for the sake of Jesus Christ. So these two passages, Hebrews 12 and this this one, where God tells Paul what his life is going to be about, They're the frame for us as we look at Paul's suffering towards the end of his life. Acts chapter 23. The following night, this is after he stood before the Sanhedrin. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, So Jesus appears to him in the middle of the night. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Up until this point, I I said that I think Paul's been 50-50 about whether or not he would survive Jerusalem. Now Jesus appears to him and says, take courage, you're going to go to Rome. This makes sense of the book of Romans, which he had written at this time. And in the book of Romans, he says, I hope to come to you if the Lord allows. So Paul, he's got these two things. I think I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem and suffer, and I might die. Also, to Rome. Now Jesus makes sense of how the Spirit has been stirring within him. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. This behind-the-scenes conspiracy, there's these men, they're neither going to eat nor drink until they've assassinated They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, and though you were going to de- as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Is this according to the Torah? Is this how things are supposed to happen? Definitely not. So this is pretty insidious. All right, now this part, this next verse, um, if you've been taking notes at home, and following this uh, story closely, this will come as somewhat of a surprise to you. Because up until this point, neither Luke nor Paul in any of his letters have ever mentioned anything about extended family. And then we have this verse out of nowhere. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So apparently Paul's got a nephew living in Jerusalem, which begs all sorts of questions. What other siblings does he have? What's his family like? Alas, this is all we know. Paul's got a nephew, and he was in Jerusalem, and somehow the Lord had it ordained that he would overhear this plot. And so he comes to Paul and tells him about it. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. 
So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this young man as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately. said, Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Two of the centurions and get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. That's a lot of people to transfer one guy. Look at those numbers. There's a lot. There's a big guard going with Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So uh, the tribune is a shrewd. He's already saved Paul's life up to this point. He knows that Paul is a Roman citizen and deserves um, a, a legal trial, and he's not getting one. Um, and there's this assassination attempt, so he sends all of these soldiers to take him uh, up north to Caesarea to the palace of Felix the governor. Verse 26, this is the letter that he wrote. This is the tribune. His name is Claudius Lysias. He says, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days... The high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, or a lawyer, might be a better translation, uh, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. All right, so if you remember from um, early in chapter 23, he was the high priest when Paul stood before the Sanhedrin, and um, he accused Paul uh, of blasphemy, and then Paul, do you remember what he said to him? Or he had Paul slapped. He said, he said to the soldier, slap Paul. And then Paul blurts out, uh, why would you break the, the law, you whitewashed tomb, you hypocrite? And then, uh, and then they told Paul that he was the high priest. Um, at this point, the high priesthood was a political position. It was no longer um, operating like it was designed to in Deuteronomy. And so the high priest would often change hands based on who gave the biggest bribe, and so on and so forth. So Paul didn't know who, that he was the high priest, but this is the same guy. So five days later, six days after he stood before him, uh, 
uh, after Paul called him a whitewashed tomb and a hypocrite, he comes up with some of the elders and this lawyer, uh, this man named Tertullus. Now, his job, uh, Tertullus, his job is to frame the argument against Paul in a way that translates outside of Judaism and into Roman, Greco-Roman law. Because the tribune has already said, this man has done nothing to deserve punishment. It's just a matter of their Jewish law. So they're going to try to reframe it in a way that makes Paul guilty outside of just strictly Judaism and also in the Roman world. All right. This is very Shakespearean. If you want a lesson in how to kiss up to someone, listen to these words. This is unbelievable. The flattery, the ridiculousness of the statement. So this is the lawyer. He comes up. You can picture like a Shakespearean play. He's got his tights on. And he stands before them. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Wow. Makes Felix sound like a pretty cool dude, right? That's the kind of leader you would want to have, isn't it? Politicians were, had that much integrity. This is what um, the historian, theologian, N.T. Wright writes about Felix. So Paul is handed over to the provincial governor himself. The governor at the time was Felix. Originally a freed man, Felix had risen quickly up the social scale as a favorite of the emperor Claudius. He was a brother of Paulus, one of Claudius's right-hand men. Felix was a callous, corrupt official who had squashed a Jewish rebellion, had instigated the murder of a high priest, and rather like Galileo, when the mob had beaten up Sosthenes in Corinth, he stood by as Jews in Caesarea were attacked by a local crowd. He was, however, married to a Jewish princess, his third wife, Drusilla, who was a daughter of Herod Agrippa. There was at least a small chance that he might listen favorably to a plea from the Jewish hierarchy. So this man is a corrupt leader who has squashed a rebellion and murdered a high priest. Does not sound like it, but that's who he is. Tertullus goes on to say, but to, det to detain you no further, we know you're an important person, we don't want to waste your time. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Verse 6, this is the, the thrust of their argument that translates outside of Judaism. Because in the Greco-Roman pagan world, every city that economically, religiously, politically was centered on the temple uh, cult of the city. And so whatever city you were in, whether it was Ephesus or Corinth or Rome itself, to profane the temple was high treason blasphemy because the welfare of the city was directly tied to the welfare of the temple. So if you were cursing the temple, what you were directly cursing was the city itself that was dependent on the temple. And so this is the thrust of their argument. He has profaned the temple, and because he's profaned the temple, he has wished uh, the destruction 
of a Roman colony, Jerusalem, the city. Verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replies. So Paul, it's his turn. All right, Paul's not going to kiss up in quite the same way. There's almost a wink and a nod to at this point. He just simply says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. He doesn't say anything about his quality. So it's sort of like, uh, you know that that was a whole load of, you know what? So knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Because you actually know what's going on. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. So this is less than two weeks later after he arrived. Verse 12, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's the Jesus followers, according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Let's read verse 15 together. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. If you want to read more about Paul's theology of resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 is both your starting and ending point. Read 1 Corinthians 15 for a fuller explanation of what Paul believes about the resurrection. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Because God is going to resurrect every person who's ever lived, because every person who's ever lived is going to stand before Almighty God as judge, both just and unjust will stand before him. Because of this, I always try to live a clear conscience, Paul says. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. This is the only place where Luke mentions the offering that Paul had brought to Jerusalem. So he says, I brought this alms to my nation and, uh, after several years of being away. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd. Ephesus. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council other than this one thing of the dead that I am on. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, so he, he understands Christianity. Luke says he understands it well, an accurate knowledge. He put them off saying, when Lysias, that, that's the Roman tribune, the one who wrote the letter and sent Paul safely to him, when the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. This is the daughter of Herod Agrippa, his third wife, the Jewish princess, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. All right, I want to highlight this for a minute. 
This is the fleshly response to a word of the righteousness and holiness and sanctity of God. This is, this is our natural, fallen, fleshly response. As Paul reasons about righteousness, so God's rightness, his justice, as Paul talks about self-control, and as he talks about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ, Felix is alarmed and pushes it away, pushes the discomfort of that conversation away. This is the exact opposite of what we're called to do. When we are presented by God's word or teaching or a a leader or someone who's speaking into our life, when we are presented with the righteousness and self-control of God, and his call to us to live righteously and with self-control. And when we are taught and presented and God speaks about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ, the first response is correct. We should be alarmed. We should fear God. There should be a fear of the Lord. The second response is incorrect. (laughs) Instead of stepping away, we should actually step into that. I've said this before, and I know it makes people uncomfortable, but I think it's so important. We should embrace God's judgment right now. Today is the day to embrace God's judgment. If you put off God's judgment for tomorrow or for for the end, you ultimately end up facing the consequences. But when you embrace the judgment of God, and what judgment means in in both Greek and Hebrew, is simply to separate good from bad. That's what it means to judge something, to separate. When we embrace the judgment of God today, what we find ourselves is cleansed and standing righteously with self-control, no longer fearing the judgment of God because we've already received it in Christ. So, church, as you hear the words of God's righteousness, he is a righteous and holy God. None of us are worthy. As you hear the call to self-control, none of us are able to be self-controlled apart from the fruit of the Spirit, which is kind of funny that it's called self-control because it's a fruit of the Spirit. Think about that for a minute. As we are called to self-control and the righteousness of God, let's step into it and embrace the judgment seat of God, not running from it. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? The world hates the light, and so it flees from the light. That's what Felix is doing. The light of Christ is shining on him, and he's fleeing the light. But he says, the children of the light come to the light, come to the judgment. That's what the picture of judgment is in the scriptures, is the light of God. So step into God's judgment today. It's a gift from God to be judged by God today. It's a gift. It's a gift. You've been taught in many ways by culture your whole life to avoid judgment at all costs. You cannot be alive in Christ until you've embraced his judgment today. Felix says, go away, I can't handle that. He's uncomfortable. He doesn't want to come to terms with his own sinfulness and the holiness of God. He's concerned about the judgment that might actually be true and coming. Paul has such conviction, it's it's almost convincing. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped, all right, and this this is the corrupt piece of Felix we see coming out. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him. What's What's he want? He wants a bribe. Paul came with all this money to Jerusalem, right? You told me that you traveled to Jerusalem with all this money. 
So he's hoping for a bribe. So he keeps sending for him, it says, often, and conversed with him. But his motive in sending for Paul all the time was that one of these days, Paul's just going to slip me a cool whatever, and he can hit the road, and I can say sayonara, and we'll be good. Verse 27, but two years ellipsed. This happens over two years. And Felix is finally succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Why is Felix a lame duck concerned about the Jews? Well, he's got to go back to Rome and give an account of his governorship. And part of the account is that Jewish leaders would travel with him and say from their perspective to Caesar, this is how he did. And so this is Felix covering his own tracks. He's, he's getting in good with the Jews. Um, so he leaves Paul in prison for two years. All right, that's where we're going to pick up next week. Again, to end our time here, and this is where I want to meditate together for a few moments, a few minutes together. Let's go back to this passage. Let's see the patience of Paul and the patience of Christ, the endurance of Paul because of the endurance of Christ, the call to lay aside all the things that would ensnare us and entangle us. So I'm going to read this over us, and let's reflect on it. I invite you to uh, come to a quiet place before the Lord to embrace his judgment and his call to walk with him. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may no longer, that you may no, not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I invite you to meditate on that for a few moments. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your son. We thank you for those that are in Christ Jesus. The judgment of God is not something to be feared, but to be embraced. Because in your judgment, we find life. Jesus said to Nicodemus, I have not come to condemn the world but to save the world. And then he immediately says the next thing, but I did come to bring judgment. So even though he didn't come with the purpose of condemning, he did come for the purpose of judging. And this is the judgment, that the people of earth have loved the dark rather than the light. And when the light of God shines, they hide because they don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. But the sons of God step into the light, that who they are might be revealed. I don't know another way of interpreting that than to say this, that we have to embrace Jesus' judgment today, to step into the light, to let you shine upon us. Closing thought here, for me, the joy, I asked you to think about, what's the joy set before you? For me, if I would put it in my own when I'm laying in bed at night and having an existential crisis and, you know, when you're laying there and you're like, is this worth it? And God, are you really there? And those moments of just complete brokenness, vulnerability. When, when I'm in that place and I'm my most broken, raw person and I put voice to what I most desire, 
it would be this. What I most desire is to know that Jesus loves me and to know that I love him. That, that's like if I could strip off all my, you know, my show, my pretense, the things I do to impress people, all that silliness, and I'm just real for real for real. The thing, that, to put words to it, and, and we all have different ways of saying this, but the thing that God has called us to is to know God and to be known by him, to love him and be loved by him. This is the joy that's set before me, that sustains me through times of doubt, through times of pain, is that I believe that he actually does love me. I believe that. And I believe that he loves us. Why else would he become like us and suffer such things if it wasn't for love? And that's exactly what we're going to sing to end our time. In the old hymn, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. So let's stand. And in closing, let's sing this song together. Phil picked out the songs this week and the Lord had put that on his heart and just been meditating on it all week, how perfectly it fit for where we're at. Closing Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says earlier in the book, he says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and because every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, 
while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Father, we bless you this morning. We look to Christ as we walk from here throughout our week. We seek to follow in your footsteps. Plant your word deep in our hearts. May we be a people who know you and are known by you, who love you and are loved by you, who are cleansed by the blood of Christ and are filled with your righteousness and self-control, who no longer fear the coming judgment, but step into the light, letting the light of Christ shine upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.